0: The experience of safety is, okay, I've escaped the tiger. I'm no longer under threat. The experience of safeness is sitting in the cave at the end of the day, surrounded by your tribe. And they're very different feelings. You're listening to CWC Talks, a podcast from the University of Florida Counseling and Wellness Center. In each episode, we discuss mental health topics related to the experience of being a student and share the struggles and joys of taking care of your mental health while in college.
1: Before we get started, just a few notes on today's content. The views expressed here only reflect our opinions and don't represent the CWC or the University of Florida or the mental health professions as a whole. Additionally, some content may be sensitive for students who have experienced trauma, Please reach out if you need additional support.
0: In this episode, Dr. Sarah Nash and J.D. Wright, counseling psychology intern at the CWC, discuss developing resources for hard times.
1: Hi, J.D., welcome. Hi, thank you. Yeah, great to I have am, you. I'm
0: glad and excited and a little nervous to be here.
1: Yeah, <laughs> have you ever been recorded for a podcast episode before?
0: Um, not really. Okay. Um, so yeah, this will be mostly new.
1: Good. Well, thank you for taking a chance. I'm really excited for what we're going to talk about. I think it's really timely, probably always timely, but especially so right now. So we are recording this during the coronavirus pandemic of 2020. And also, what else has been happening over the last few weeks?
0: Yeah, over the last few weeks, we've also been navigating a lot of increased visibility and discussions around racism in our communities spurred on by the, the deaths of Breonna Taylor, Maude Arbery, George Floyd, among others, um, and really bringing to light a lot of the injustices and systemic oppressions and racism that have been plaguing our country for years in a place where that's very present and you know, I myself and my clients are all really Trying to navigate that the best we can,
1: yeah, and we're going to be talking a lot today about learning to navigate uncertain waters, learning to develop a set of resources that can help people feel relatively safe during times of uncertainty and difficulty in their lives, and so, um looking forward to that conversation with you I'm curious if we might start by what what have you been hearing a lot about as a counselor right now
0: I think that there's some common themes that I'm seeing with with my clients and additionally just with people in my life really you know struggling with sense of hopelessness uh, feeling powerless kind of a broader um, Reevaluation of meaning of what they want in life and what that really means to them. I've seen a lot of people coming in talking about lack of motivation. For a lot of people that I've talked to, that feels like the, the tangible thing that they are noticing. That underneath they're feeling a lot of emotions and pain. And day to day, what that looks like a lot of times is just not motivated just can't get themselves up, can't get themselves moving. And it's even almost hard to motivate themselves to look underneath that.
1: That sounds really important that there's a there's kind of a surface layer of not, not feeling motivated and lacking that drive. And it can take energy that you don't have when you're unmotivated to kind of pull that back and look at what's underneath that loss of motivation. Mm-hmm. And that it sounds like when you begin to do that with students, there's a there's a lot of depth to wh- where that loss of motivation is coming from.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I think that all of these things really feed on each other, too, and feed into each other. Um, that powerlessness, hopelessness, feeding into that motivation of, of what's the point um, if I can't change anything. And of that sense of looking out into the world and feeling like you're in a tunnel, but you really have no idea if there's an end to it and what it could possibly look like. Um, And so really struggling to find the motivation to just move forward.
1: Are you you hearing that about like academics or self-care or relationships? Like what are students identifying, uh, you know, that they're struggling to be motivated about?
0: I think it's a pretty broad disconnect from what I'm hearing for a lot of people that you know having trouble motivating themselves to engage in academics um, and also basic self care remembering to eat and sleep and have a routine to life and relationally at a time when it you know might be most important to feel connected, not only are people struggling with motivating themselves to reach out to others. We're in a place right now where connecting with others in a physical way is inherently dangerous. And society is telling us to distance and disconnect. And so all just compounding on each other um, to be a really pretty pervasive experience, I think, of, of disconnection and and struggle with that motivation piece.
1: I'm wondering, given that there are, are a lot of valid reasons why people are struggling right now with drive and with direction and with hope.
0: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm.
1: How do you begin to work with students around, around those issues? Because that can feel so heavy, right? That, That can feel so heavy and you don't have any of the ultimate answers either. Or if you do, please, please share them um, because I would, love, <laughs> I would love to know. But yeah, like how do you begin to support students to, or, or yourself for that matter, right, to, 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 to work with this stuff?
0: Yeah, it's a struggle because a lot of what my clients and friends and colleagues and we're all going through the, the similar experience right now of life. And all trying to navigate and knowing that the answers really aren't internal. They're not internal to anyone that I'm working with. The answers aren't fix yourself because the responses that are coming out are just so honest and natural and appropriate to the situation, really. Um, And so the response is not, how do we fix you? Um, I think that the initial step is how do we make sure that you're seen? How do you feel seen? How do you feel heard? How do you see yourself? Validating that what ultimately needs to change is environment, society, culture. And I think this is true even in other times, Um, validating responses to difficult situations, to traumas, that while the work might be individual, really wanting to validate and acknowledge that the problem is an individual.
1: Thank you for saying that and so clearly too. I'm imagining that hearing you say that as a counselor and also as a white male, you know, might might be deeply validating for certain, certain you know, for anyone really, but com- coming f- from you that Even me as a white female, like hearing you say that is uh, comforting in a lot of ways. That it's this, that that the distress is a response to systems that are ill, for lack of a better word, that the systems are the problem and that people are responding to problematic systems, not that the problem is within.
0: Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah, and, and I can only hope that it's experienced that way. But very much I feel like that that and all of this needs to be the starting point is naming that explicitly.
1: You're not broken.
0: Yes, yes, you're not broken. Um, this is not your fault. There's nothing wrong with this response that you're having um, and that we can help support you as a person navigating this together as someone helping you to navigate this experience um, with that deep acknowledgement that we're supporting you in a broken system.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm glad that we're, that we're forming that frame for this conversation. Okay. So we're, we're going to be talking today about given all of that context What are things that any of us can be thinking about, practicing, looking for, and working on during this time? And really at at any time where there's a lot of chronic stress and difficulty in our lives. And the word that you have used around that that set of work and tools and support support is called resourcing. And I had not heard that word when when you first used it. And I it, it led me to reach out to you and ask you to tell me more about that. So what is this concept of resourcing?
0: Yeah. So the idea of resourcing is talked a lot about in trauma work and trauma-based therapy work, trauma-informed work. And the idea of resourcing is that as we are in therapy, working on difficult topics, delving into difficult places, or just in life, navigating difficult circumstances and situations, in order to do so without becoming overwhelmed and re-traumatized, each time we tap into these difficult places, that we work to develop a bank of resources, an ability to, in the moment, both notice, experience of overwhelm coming up, and have some tools to bring yourself back to a sense of groundedness, a sense of safety, a sense of presence. And so these resources can look like a lot of different things. They can be internal or external. So there's not one particular strategy for this, and it's very individual. But it's, it's really developing and practicing, actively practicing ability to tap into these resources whatever they look like in times of need
1: so where might someone begin
0: I think that the best place to begin and where I usually start with clients and sometimes the only place I ever go is noticing and acknowledging and naming the resources that you already have I think that needs to be the starting point because we all have resources We've all been navigating hard times for all through our lives. We've all faced challenges and we all have things that we draw on. Sometimes for people that's loved ones, that can be relationships, someone that they can reach out to for comfort and support, or just someone that they can reach out to for presence to just be there. Um, For some people, it could look like a pet or an animal For some people, it's a a deep well of internal resources of some sort, some characteristic or value that they hold that they lean on and find grounding in. It could be a sense of confidence. It could be a sense of pride. Um, It could be um, the ability to really tap into a state of calm that they've developed over time. Um, For some people, it could be spirituality. It could be reaching towards religion, whether that means community or um, a God that they find comfort in. There's there's any number of ways that this could look for someone, um, but really noticing what are the ways that we are already able to respond to difficult situations and how can we continue to cultivate those?
1: That seems really important, starting with what do I already have available to me? And what have I used and developed already to deal with the challenges that I've been through? Instead of having to start from ground zero, which is very discouraging, When, especially when life is particularly hard to think about starting with nothing. it's It's like, well, what have I already developed to cope with my difficult life circumstances
0: yeah and then from there we can recognize that in the moment that might feel like not enough Uh, maybe just noticing them and being able to acknowledge them is the only step that's needed but sometimes it's feeling like okay for this current time for this current work I need a little bit more and that might be just further practicing and developing what resources are already there. It might be reconnecting with something that's worked in the past. So reaching out to relationships in a different way, really trying to reconnect and engage in those. Just noticing once again those strengths inside inside oneself, the, the ability to find a place of calm and just practicing that.
1: One thing I'm hearing is that this doesn't necessarily mean you have to do anything. You might do something. You this might be a in kind of active process, something like listening to a guided meditation or scheduling time with, to talk to a certain person, taking a walk. Those are all things that involve doing. And there can also be a way of going inward where you are just being, you're trying to connect with something within yourself that's doesn't look like much on the outside, but is is an inward facing c- connecting to yourself or connecting to spirituality or prayer or grounding within.
0: yeah, I, I think that one sort of overarching feature of resources in general is that they have the ability to bring us in a sense out of our head into something else so that could be out of our head into relationships out of our head into our body out of our head into our spirit but out of our head and into another container where you can connect with a sense of calm or safety another piece of that is is a connection to the present, with the acknowledgement that most of the anxiety that we feel in our lives, most of the conflict that goes on in our head has to do with either the past or the future, either ruminating about the past in some way or worrying about things that had happened or worrying about the future, anxious about the future. What resourcing does is it brings us in some way to the present to the current present experience and helps to bring us into that moment and hopefully a sense of safeness that we can find in that.
1: Um, Yeah. I'm glad that you brought up safety because that's something that I've been thinking about as we talk. I guess I've been in my head a little bit even as we're talking. Well, I was thinking that safety is relative and safety is not an absolute concept. It's not that I am necessarily just, it's not binary. I'm safe or I'm not safe. That there's a, there's, I am either relatively safe or relatively unsafe in this moment. And that that for me was a very helpful clarification as a person around what to look for when i'm looking for safety because if i'm looking for like absolute certainty that doesn't exist cuz i sometimes when i when i think i want safety it's like no what i really want is i want to know what's going to happen i want to know how it's going to turn out and none of us have that crystal ball so trying to find a sense of am i relatively safe in this moment and using that as the, as the inquiry, like how do I create relative safety for myself in this moment, given that there may be a lot of uncertainty and that depending on who you are, especially as you add in marginalized identities to the picture, the notion of safety changes even more.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think that 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 not, it's not an absolute, feels important. Another piece of that that I'm, I'm sitting with is, um, there's, there's some research that really tries to delineate between the idea of safety and the idea of safeness, which sounds like just a grammatical thing, but the idea of safety is really just an end point on the threat spectrum. So safety being a lack of threat, and that very much just being along a spectrum. Whereas safeness is kind of a different dimension almost, um, because the experience of safeness throughout our history as humans has generally been associated with a social connection. The experience of safety is, okay, I've escaped the tiger, I'm no longer under threat. The experience of safeness is sitting in the cave at the end of the day, surrounded by your tribe. And they're very different feelings, lack of threat versus safeness. And so I think really when we're looking at resourcing, while we want to acknowledge that we're trying to decrease threat, The end goal that we're looking for in this is how can we develop a connection to that sense of safeness, that ability to settle the nervous system, feel connected, feel in the moment, not worrying about what's going on around, not like a question of, is this current moment safe objectively? That being an important step, but building to this broader experience of feeling safe. And usually that means feeling safe in connection to something. And that can be an internal self. It could be a characteristic that's developed internally in the form of like self-compassion and, um, you know, connection to those inner qualities, um, or it could be connection to others in your life.
1: Thank you for clarifying that. I, no one's ever explained it to me like that before JD and I find that really helpful. And I'm imagining when you're working with students who have need of these of these principles, that it's a combination of both, that there are, are skills and practices and resources to help reduce the sense of threat. And there are, you know, other ways to begin to build that sense of safeness. And they're they're complementary, but they're not the same.
0: Yes. Yeah.
1: Okay. Do we, because you had said early on, you said one of the important things to be able to do is to notice overwhelm when it's coming up or you notice when we're getting really overwhelmed. I would also say notice when we're feeling scared. Notice when we are experiencing a threat, whether real or perceived, doesn't really matter to the nervous system, whether it's real or perceived, Right. So is it important, I guess I'm wondering, is it important to, if I'm feeling threatened, do I need to attend to that first before I work on the safeness part? Like how, where do you start, I guess?
0: Yeah, that's, I think, a nice logical stepping stone there is I think the first assessment that needs to happen is, am I objectively under threat right now? And if so, it could be that the responses would not be adaptive to get rid of them. If, if objectively there is threat there, then fear and anger and all of those emotions are totally appropriate. And so then the question becomes, how do we work with that in a productive way? So the first question, yeah, is very much, is, is there objective threat in this moment? And then from there, if I'm experiencing this sense of threat, how do I tone it down enough? again, with that sense of I'm not probably in this moment going to get a sense like no threat, complete safety. How do we tone it down enough? And we all have strategies for that. The one that I hear most commonly in students, and they never think of it as a positive coping strategy, is distraction. It is like, I'm, I'm going to play some Candy Crush. Yeah, I'm going to pull out my phone. I'm going to binge some Netflix. Um, yeah, distraction. It's like the ultimate adaptive response to, I'm just gonna get away from thinking about the threat for a while. There's nothing inherently wrong with that. Like, it's, it's totally adaptive and helpful. Um, I think the problem comes in is when, when people, when students feel like they don't have any other options. Um, that, that's the only tool in their toolbox. And so that's where that initial step of naming, what are the other tools that are actually there, can be really helpful. What are the other ways in the past that you've, you know, quote, down-regulated, that you've noticed threat and helped to calm things down? And sometimes write them out, post them somewhere, because in that moment, we fall back to what we know. When we're under a threat, we fall back to what we've practiced and are just natural patterns. Yeah, practicing and being intentional about trying other strategies, whether that's deep breathing, whether that's yoga, whether that's calling a friend, or maybe intentionally in that moment saying, I'm going to take 10 minutes and I'm going to play on my phone. Um, Any of those. I think that um, particularly if there's that intentionality behind it, that that can really transform the experience of doing it from... This is just the response that I have, and oh no, look, I'm lost again, to I'm making a choice to distract myself, to take a breather, to take some space, I'm making the choice to reach out, and making the choice to spend five minutes and do a breathing exercise. But yes, very much, I think that first step is, what do we do with the threat, internal, external, real, perceived, and how do we down-regulate enough?
1: One of the ways I've heard this described is the ability to determine whether or not there is a tiger or lion in the room with me right now. And so there may be lots of tigers and lions out there, outside, outside the cave, right? But in this moment, am I about to be devoured? Am I getting attacked? And if the answer is no, then there's, there's an opportunity to try to downregulate some of that activation through, through the means that you're talking about. And so again, it's not dismissing that you may be a person who lives, you know, if you're a person of color, you live with a certain amount of threat all the time. And yet in this moment, are you, are you safe enough to begin to take some breaks from that chronic state of stress activation and fear activation?
0: A sort of uh, delineation that I use a lot with clients is the difference between truthfulness and usefulness of an experience, of an emotion, of a thought. While there might be very much objective truth that threat is a constant, there's also the ability to make the decision in this moment, the reactions to threat and the emotions that are coming out with that may or may not be useful to where I want to go right now. And so really trying to, to yeah, balance between not invalidating that a lot of times this response is useful. It's there for a reason and it's honest and developed honestly. At this time, a lot of times the reason someone's coming to me is that they feel like right now this is not helpful might be the level that I'm experiencing of distress. It might be the type of distress. It might be some of what the distress is causing. But there's something that's feeling not useful to me right now.
1: talked about deep breathing, and we've gone into that, just the specifics of that in another episode. But I'm curious, are there some other like simple in the moment strategies that you teach students to try to get back into their body? Like they're sitting, you know, back in the day when we could sit in the office together, are there some like really basic things that can, can kind of help us get grounded in our bodies again? Yeah,
0: definitely. Um, the, The getting grounded in the body, I think is an important piece of that, the way you phrased that. And so a lot of the work that I do in these sorts of exercises with students is how do we get you into your body, into the body out of the head? The idea of developing groundedness, kind of almost the sense of how, how can we get you as far away from your head as possible? So a lot of the times the exercises that I'm doing with students is bringing the attention downwards to your feet, to your butt sitting in the chair, to your legs, something aimed in like a downward direction and that connecting with those parts of the body that throughout the day, we tend to just not connect with as much. We live in our upper halves. We live and do in our upper halves and we kind of forget about our legs and feet and hips and everything that's going on down there. And so practicing with them exercises, like just taking a couple of minutes and directing your attention to your feet, noticing the sensations in your feet. Noticing the pressure, the weight, really connecting to that sense of feet on the ground, supported by the earth underneath them, feeling the weight of gravity pulling you down and trying to just connect into the different senses, different experiences, Sometimes there's tingling, pressure, expansion or contraction. Sometimes different feelings of temperature. Maybe certain places feel a little warmer or cooler than others. But really just allowing yourself to notice the sensations And let go of any of the judgments, any of the thinking about that we just do so much. Any of the good or bad. Maybe the sensation needs to change in some way. Just letting that go, and just bring a sense of curiosity.
1: i doing this as you. We didn't plan this, but I, as you started talking, and you just have such a calm voice, and I just decided I would close my eyes and try to feel my feet and my legs. It was almost as if my attention, which usually exists in not just my upper half, but like from the neck up kind of a thing, as if my attention is like a scope and it dropped down into my body like an elevator going down. And just, I felt everything shift downwards. And in doing that, I felt calmer than I have felt in days with everything going on. Now that I'm kind of coming back to my head, I'm aware like all that stuff is still here. Like all that, all those problems, all those fears are still here. And wow, it was nice to, well, I guess, hello, lower half. It was nice to visit you for a minute. Maybe <laughs> I'll, Maybe I won't wait so long before I kind of come back again
0: yeah, yeah. It doesn't take away the noise outside. But what it can really do, and particularly like developing these skills and practicing them, is create a little more space to hold the noise and still be able to make choices. And so you know, when I'm doing this with clients who've experienced traumas or are experiencing traumas, It's those conversations around, how do we make a little more space to hold this pain so that you can work with it? Because if we're gonna be working on it, first need to be able to hold it and not be re-traumatized. How do we keep you from just being re-traumatized over and over again? Because that is just that state of overwhelm, that state of frozen, And create enough space where you feel like you have the choice to move. You have the choice to to work, to do something a little bit differently.
1: So are you suggesting that students can work on healing from trauma in a way that doesn't force them to just relive it over and over again?
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I think that that's a very necessary piece is how do we work with this so that it's not just reliving it because just reliving it is just reliving it. It's just experiencing it again. Your mind doesn't know that it's not actively happening right now. Our mind really doesn't have a, a great ability to differentiate between real and imagined fires all the same neurons in there, whether we're imagining something or remembering something or whether it's actively happening. One thing that comes out of that is that we can actually leverage that fact um, to develop new resources. Yeah, the fact that our mind really doesn't differentiate between real and imagined means that we can use that imagination to actively practice new ways of being, to practice cultivating different resources. So for example, one activity that I use a lot with students is you know just developing and practicing a safe place. And so it's just imagining in your mind. Um, It can be a a place from memory, it can be um, something that you've seen on TV, it could be something from a book or it could be something you know that you just draw up in the moment, a place where you were able to connect with some sense of safety some sense of calm. And then really building that experience as if you were there. So connecting into all of the different senses, looking around and seeing what you see in this space. And you know, in front of you, behind, to the left and the right, up and down connecting into all of your senses.
1: J.D., this can be, I'm trying to do this as you talk. Yeah, Does this have to be, I noticed some of my barriers come up, like, does this have to be a place that I've actually been in the past, or can I imagine like a totally new world for myself? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Does it need to be indoors, outdoors? I don't know, can there be, uh, I don't know, can there be angels wearing purple leotards in my safe place? Like, what, you know, what, What works here? Yeah. What would you yeah. yeah?
0: I feel like the only the only sort of boundary that I end up suggesting to clients is that you're there alone. Okay. And that's because particularly if we're doing trauma work, you never know who's gonna show up. Okay. In a trauma in your life in some way. That relationships are messy. And what we're looking to develop here is a fairly like clean, pure sense of calm. And so even if it's a partner or a loved one that you have like a deep connection and love with, you probably also every now and then get annoyed with them. And if you come in one day and we're doing this work and it happens to be a day when you're annoyed with them, and we try and go to your safe place and you're there, not going to be so calm.
1: I get that being married. I get that. Yes. My husband is often my safe space, but sometimes I want to get away from my husband. Yes. And if he's in yes. my imaginary safe space, that might not be helpful to me. So, so maybe yeah. I could do some angels and purple leotards if I really wanted to from a more spiritual perspective, but don't tie it to any person. Don't tie it to any person in my life. Okay.
0: Don't tie it to the actual angel and leotard that
1: you hang out with. Okay. Okay. Oh, I need to, I need to, yeah. (laughs) Okay. Fair. All of the other, all of
0: the other questions inside, outside, real, imagine, you know, I had, I had one person I worked with whose safe place was Hogwarts.
1: Oh, I love it. And another one
0: whose safe place was from a dream that they had as a kid and it involved a magical fountain and, Umbrellas that carried them around in a dragon, and they just connected so deeply with this space. And then on the other end, I, you know, I had someone whose safe place was like their high school gym, and that was the space. So, really, there's no specific boundaries to um, what this looks like, it's really just about what you can connect with, um, and then developing it like connecting with all the senses and practicing practicing it, uh, I think is really an important piece that it's not just like creating this space and then only using it when you're maxed out. Because like I said before, when we're maxed out, we fall back on what we know. And if what we know is distract, hide, disconnect, then that's in all likelihood what we'll do. Um, And so what, I really encourage is any of these resources, any of these strategies, actively developing them in times when you don't actively need them so that they are as accessible as possible when you do need them.
1: Thank you for highlighting that. That's really important. And I like that. I like the safe space idea because I think it can be just even in talking about it and playing with it a little bit, like it can be Fun. It doesn't need to be fun, but it, it, th- there can be that, that if I could go there at any time, I don't need to be stressed out to spend a little time in my safe space decorating and just, you know, making it nice, making it comfy, yeah. making it cozy. I, yeah, I think about what kind of, I'm more of a literal person, but like a, a soft plush rug and maybe some really big comfy beanbag chairs and just that cozy blanket that I can curl up under. And maybe there's like, yeah, little kitty cat there even maybe. Um, Yeah. And another
0: thing I want to add is that, you know, I use the term safe place as that's kind of the standard, but in my work, I don't have any attachment to it being a place where safeness is the dominant feature. Because for some people, they're in a place where that's not accessible and th- that might not be. And so maybe there's other characteristics that you can connect with that can still get you that sense of groundedness and connection. Um, so it might be, um, a joyful space. It might be a calm space, it might be a peaceful space, it might be a space with a sense of contentment,
1: um, or just so, like, so an energy, it could be an energy that you're visiting, uh, like a mm-hmm. a light, a source of light or darkness, or it doesn't have to be, yeah, okay. It doesn't yeah, have to be literal yeah. at all.
0: hmm hmm Yeah, it's whatever Whatever feels like you can really connect with that helps to bring you out of the overwhelm and into a place that feels more restful okay. and feeling.
1: Okay. Do you have one of those?
0: <laughs> I have a couple. Um, one of my go-tos is, and so what, another thing I do when I'm doing this is I always pair it with a trigger word. Okay. And, and so I'll encourage clients to do that so that in the moment, as they've practiced over time, they've sort of paired the trigger word with the space. And in the moment when they're feeling overwhelmed, they can just say the trigger word to themselves. And so one of my, one of my trigger words it's like, like a password? It's like off, a password. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So one of mine is kayak. Um, and growing up, we had a uh, a house, my grandmother's house right on the Homosassa river and she had a, a nice dock out there. And one thing that we would do is just tie the kayak to the end of the dock and let it float out. And then I'd just lay in the kayak and, you know, there's all sorts of water birds around there that I'm listening to and the sound of the river coming by, the feeling of like the heat of the sun with the cool breeze and the water occasionally splashing. And I, I can really connect with the visuals of that space and just spend a lot of time there. So that's, that's definitely one that I go to a lot.
1: I love that. I know, you know, we're talking about stress and trauma and stuff, but what sorts of... Times recently have you found yourself visiting that place? Like when do you when do you find yourself visiting that place lately?
0: I'm gonna be totally honest and say that I haven't visited that place all that much recently. And so this actually is a great reminder (laughs) in this moment that I need to go visit that place some. I need to hang out on that kayak a little bit more.
1: That it's there.
0: Yeah, yeah. And it takes reminders. I forget. And so, yeah, looking forward, I'm imagining that even just throughout the day, um, in between meetings, in between clients, just spending a couple of minutes checking Mm -hmm. into that place, letting myself rest there, little internal mini vacations.
1: Okay. And that, and me, you know, me too. I really appreciate the reminder, JD. I, I was thinking about what you said that as much as, our, our mind's ability to imagine all kinds of threats can wreak havoc on our stress response. We can also use our imagination to develop the relaxation response and that the more vivid and real and not literal, but real to us, these safe places, inner safe places can be, the the more it's like we're flexing the opposite muscle from the Mm -hmm. one that raises our nervous system and really stresses us out.
0: Yeah, yeah. And neurologically, we're flexing the opposite system. So when we're practicing this, this is part of that safeness system that we're developing. And anytime we're activating that, Neurologically, it's inhibiting the threat system. They they can't be going on at the same time. And so the more that we practice this, the stronger that system gets, and the better able it is to function to to regulate the threat system. Um, So the practice really is both a short-term and a long-term thing. It's really strengthening neurologically that part of ourselves that has the ability to feel this.
1: I was just going to throw out a couple of other examples about learning how to bring kind of what we said about that first part of safety and threat. And then Mm -hmm, maybe mm -hmm. we can talk some about safeness and the, the the connection and the sitting with the tribe in the cave at the end of the day kind of notion. But I have used uh, objects like to, to find an object that conveys a a sense of calm or safety to me that fit in the palm of my hand and I could tuck it in my purse or my pocket and I I could touch it when I needed to. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. a shell or I like river stones from the mountains, those really smooth, cool stones. And just the act of like touching the stone, feeling its weight, feeling its temperature. Maybe I can't even feel my body in the moment because I'm I'm not connected to my body, but I can begin to feel the stone and what it's like and ask myself, you know, what are my senses telling me about this stone? And so I've used that at times when I'm stressed and I've encouraged students to do something like that before tests if they get anxious. And I found that the little objects can really go a long way for that too. And also sometimes colors, and textures. So trying to identify, tell me like five green things that you can see right now and five yellow things and five white things. And it sounds silly almost. It's like, uh, why I'm not in elementary school. Like I know my colors already, but it, it starts to kind of let the senses come back online to look for colors and and to feel sometimes I'll just say like, rub your hands over the couch and the table and the surfaces that are around you and tell me what textures you feel. Is it smooth? Is it rough? And again, just like that, can you feel your feet? Can you feel your legs? What are you sensing? Sometimes using those external cues to to uh, activate the senses can be really helpful.
0: Yeah. I love that. I think any, any way to touch into the senses and touch being a big one Um, and so sometimes yeah having the object having um, something that's familiar that's comfortable sometimes just touching what's around and I'd say expanding to any of the senses sometimes uh, listening to a particular song um, a particular smell I, I had one client that I worked with that when we were doing the difficult work kind of unpacking their traumas they always brought with them, and I encouraged them to do so, a Dr. Pepper. And if they felt like it was too much, we'd take a couple minutes and they just got to drink their Dr. Pepper. And that was their grounding space. Like the taste, the smell, the sound of the bubbly, like everything about Dr. Pepper connected them back to the moment.
1: I love that. I love that because my mind went to like lavender essential oil or something fancy like that. But no, like a Dr. Pepper could be just as much or more powerful for someone. Yeah,
0: absolutely. One of one of my trainers, um, teachers, with all of his clients, one of the first things he does is, like, get a full repertoire of their musical interests and backgrounds. And so he'll totally weave music into the work as this really grounding force and a way to, to help people just connect back in. Um, so... Yeah, being creative with that in any way that you can engage the senses at all, I think is um, has the potential to be a really powerful thing
1: for that threat system to let the threat stuff mm-hmm. come down. Okay, so yeah. let's say, let's say I'm working on building those resources, and I'm also hearing you say it's really important to practice it's really important to develop those before we desperately need them so they're <laughs> easy to get to so we we remember our password in a crisis right we can quickly type it in to get into that to get into that place whatever it is for us that we've been practicing it so we can pull it up and go there when we most need it let's talk some about the the safeness. So that, that set of resources around connection and belonging and, and tribe.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So sometimes these can look similarly. Sometimes these are, are similar types of resources. So for example, the, the safe place imagery that I do, one piece that I add in there to try and tap into that connection system, the safeness system a little bit more is that the, once someone feels connected and is there, adding in the piece of really trying to imagine and connect with the idea that not only is this your place, your unique place, but this place welcomes you, that it wants you there, and that it's there for you. So even in this non-literal, like it's not another person we're connecting with, we can tap into that sense of connection of sort of being cared for, and being loved, and being supported.
1: Being wanted. So yes. Being wanted, being, being wanted. welcomed. I, wow, that's mm-hmm. so crazy because I didn't even think about that part of it when I was thinking about this space. I was thinking about it as pretty inanimate versus uh, that that it wants me, it's welcoming me.
0: And most people describe when when they add that in, a sense of warmth kind of appears.
1: Totally. It wasn't there before. Yeah, totally. Uh, Yeah. Like my heart, I can feel my heart start to warm up a little bit.
0: Yeah. And that same aspect of warmth can be added into just about any of these exercises by just simply adding in the intentionality of I'm doing this for myself. I am giving this to myself. And that rather than just being a coping mechanism to make things not as bad, that it's really a gift.
1: I'm hearing this is
0: something I do.
1: Yeah, I'm hearing I'm giving this to myself and I'm also hearing I'm allowed to receive this.
0: Yes. Yes. I'm receiving this from myself. Yeah, absolutely. And so we have the ability to both give and receive there. Yeah.
1: I'm just thinking that that in and of itself that notion has so much tenderness in it and it sounds so simple but when I'm struggling it's really hard to access that to just to just pull up that tenderness or that softness for mm-hmm. myself. I tended yeah. to be like at the last couple of nights, I've been unable to sleep, just worrying for the for the people I love and worried about the world and like just kind of running around in my head. And it, it it's like no matter how much I have learned about these skills as a therapist, in, in the moment, I just kept thinking, what is wrong with me? I should be able to go to sleep by now. I'm really tired.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah and i'll say that for for some people for a lot of people right now maybe even it might be too hard to really connect into that feeling of giving and receiving care to yourself because it could just be so embedded that that's not okay that you know we judge ourselves we put ourselves down and that's necessary in some way to to move forward and so that's where Drawing from other resources as well, I think, can be important. Um, So in the same way that, you know, we can create an imagined safe space, we can also create imagined others that we can sort of visit and receive love and compassion from. So for a lot of people, I think animals are a great, like, uh, I was going to say starter, but really it could be the starter and the finisher, Um, but a good place that, A lot of time we have less resistance around receiving love and compassion from, you know, a furry friend or even like, you know, an imagined animal, something at the zoo or whatever you feel like you connect with. But, you know, for a lot of people I know, their their pets are just the absolute best example of just unquestioned, unadulterated love. And so sometimes that's an easier place to tap into, whether it's in person physically with that pet or connection, or again, just letting yourself imagine um, that, that characteristic and really feeling it. I, I remember as I was doing some work myself, going through the training for trauma work, kind of delve into it you're on yourself, I was trying to practice the, the characteristic of vulnerability. And the image that I connected with to try and cultivate that sense of vulnerability was an image of my little dog just on her back, tummy up, just like, here I am. <laughs> and that was just the image that I'm like, oh, that's the level of vulnerability I need to tap into right now.
1: <laughs> wow. I love that. I love that because it it's it's a... Potentially, it's an opportunity to step around a lot of blocks that we normally put in our own way,
0: yeah, so it's really creative work. There's no right or wrong way to find and develop these resources in ourselves. Um, it's It's allowing yourself to really just find what works.
1: I'm thinking like spirit that. spirit animals, too, or when you take yeah. the chance to cultivate other others that we visit, whether that's ancestors or you know, deities or beings, or uh, even even the idea of like, I was seeing a, a snail or a turtle having a shell. And that that there are times when sometimes it's the it's the belly up puppy on the floor vulnerability, but maybe other times mm-hmm. we need to be able to draw upon a sense of healthy boundaries and yeah security and safety and a and a barrier like a healthy barrier mm-hmm. that's there. Mm-hmm. So lots of different ways to explore.
0: Definitely, yeah.
1: And then you had said something about certain resources are privileged?
0: Yeah, and um, so related to the idea that we can imagine and use our imagery and visualizations to engage these systems neurologically when we receive input, either externally or internally, it has to do with relationships, with social aspects, and that can be relationships to others or relationship to ourselves. Neurologically, that information is privileged in our system, meaning that it tends to activate more highly, and it also has more ability to override other things going on. So, if you think about just our earliest threat response system and how we coped with stress as babies. Babies cry, and they receive comfort from someone else.
1: Hopefully. And
0: that, yeah, hopefully, yes, yes, hopefully. Hopefully.
1: Not always, but hopefully. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah.
0: yeah. yeah. Um, but that's, that's the, the design of the cry. Right. The cry is a symbol to receive social support in
1: yes. some way. Yes,
0: yes. And so that social support is more potent than other types of support and has just yeah a little more intensity to it sometimes. The ability to um, change those neural structures a little bit more and a little bit more quickly. And so that's why in addition to practicing the safety component of that, trying to build in the social piece, whether that's receiving it from someone else or giving to yourself, can be really impactful because it's tapping into and developing that system that evolutionarily is really meaningful and powerful and how we really can connect into the in a sense opposite of the threat experience.
1: Like we get a lot of bang for our buck when we do the when we when we activate the social support system, even if it's just imaginary, even if I'm visiting a therapist that I saw 10 years ago in my in my mind. If I'm mm-hmm. visiting that person, I'm feeling their love coming towards me. That I'm getting a lot of return on that. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, absolutely.
0: It's
1: like a self-care superfood. <laughs> I is. have lots of other other uh-huh. parallels I can draw, but I won't. I, I won't make people roll their eyes at me too much. But yeah. but yeah, that that that's so interesting. Okay. That's what you meant by privilege. I wasn't sure, because we've been talking, obviously, about a lot of other kinds of privilege. But yeah, in, yeah. yeah, okay.
0: Neurologically privileged. Okay.
1: Yeah. Mm. yeah. So it sounds like it's great if you can learn these tools with someone as gentle and supportive as you are, JD. I can imagine being being a student in your in your office or over Zoom and having, you know, I'm I'm benefiting right now even from just having spent this time with you and having you introduce me to some of this stuff and also remind me of some of it. But um, but I'm also wondering, is is therapy always necessary to work on these things?
0: Yeah, I would say absolutely not, that, that sometimes therapy is important and I think almost always therapy can be a nice support uh, in some way, even if it's just a session or two check-in. Um, it's why I do what I do. I think it's great, um, but absolutely it's it's not necessary and there's a lot of this work that can be done individually. And there's lots of spaces out there to find this. I mean, YouTube, you could probably find a YouTube video on every single thing we mentioned here today um, and a guided version of it to go along with it. So probably, you know, a Ted talk, a guided version, and then a couple people critiquing it Um, the whole package for each of them.
1: Yes. And books and articles and blogs and everything, some Instagram posts, all of it. Yeah.
0: I think one of the, the difference is that sometimes people feel within therapy that is harder to replicate on your own, but absolutely can be is the uh, like the accountability component and the intensity at which we practice this. So like, I I don't think I've encountered a client that said, no, I've never done deep breathing, (laughs) never taken a deep breath in my life. But when I ask clients, what do you do there? How do you do deep breathing? What does that look like? You know, a lot of times it's okay, I take a couple of deep breaths, and that's great. But a sustained practice of okay, I'm feeling anxious. I'm going to take five or 10 minutes and do this particular type of deep breathing in this particular sustained way can have a world of difference between how that affects you long term. And so, if you're doing it on your own, like I strongly encourage you to try all of these things on your own. And when you find something that works, try and really commit, like invest in that practice more than you normally would. Um, Because again, we're really working hard to override patterns of responding that have been built in throughout our lives. And so it really takes some effort and intentionality to override those sometimes.
1: That's super important that practice is really what allows this to i don't know burn in in some ways right and yeah. become available to us in in the moment where we we find ourselves truly needing truly ne- needing it i'm kind of challenging myself to do something today before i lay down tonight And all the noise in my head starts up again to do something today before I get to bed to take care of myself. And maybe, yeah, maybe I still have trouble sleeping tonight, maybe not. But that's the thing about practice is that we aren't looking necessarily for for big changes right in the moment. We're looking for changes over time
0: absolutely yeah i will name that challenge for myself too <laughs> something today and i think that that is the only starting point something today
1: that i'll end with this my dad's getting older and he has a lot of health challenges and so he's he's really he's really hiding out right now during the coronavirus because if he gets it that that would probably be the end for him. And so I texted him last night and said, dad, do you wanna, you know, do you wanna talk? Do you wanna talk tomorrow? Do you wanna talk now? And his answer was, now is always a good time. And I thought how, how poignant, right? Given that I don't, I I don't know. My dad and I are in an uncertain place. His life is in an uncertain place right now, but also, yes, now is always a good time to practice. Thank you so much for for joining me today, JD. Thank
0: you. Thank you for creating this space um, and giving me this opportunity and creating the space for this now. You've been listening to CWC Talks, a podcast from the University of Florida Counseling and Wellness Center. For new episodes, show notes, and to leave feedback or suggestions, please
1: visit counseling.ufl.edu slash CWC Talks.